I'm also so grateful to everyone who's come because God always does good things here at these breakfasts, doesn't he? <laughs> um, he never disappoints. Way to put the pressure on me, right? <laughs> no, but thanks so much. So I think it was last week that I had the chance to sit up in the balcony and observe things from Mandy's aerial view. Hi up there, Mandy. <laughs> and it was awesome imagining what it must be like for God as a loving father who sees the tops of all of our little heads. You know, imagine him on a Sunday, you know, we're all there from the balcony. Um, sees the tops of all of our little heads, hairs numbered. Can you imagine? Jane currently has 99,786. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I just had to Google, what is the average number of hairs on a... <laughs> and it's like 100,000. I thought it'd be a lot more than that. Anyway, um, I'm sure my daughter has a lot more than that. <laughs> but he sees each of us where we are, sees the holes in our socks and the holes in our hearts, the joys, the sorrows, our doubts, fears, and insecurities, sees our pasts and our futures, every detail of the circumstances we find ourselves in right now, and just lovingly embraces us because we are his children. Or some of us, um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, for some of us, he's a little like our own fathers, for others, not at all. But regardless of who your biological, adoptive, or stepfather is or was, your Heavenly Father loves you more. He knows you better. He gave you to your earthly father and vice versa for a reason. And the plans he draws for each and every life are meant to prosper and not to harm you, to give you hope and a future. The Bible tells us that in Jeremiah, and I believe it. Well, recently my mind has been on my own father a lot. He passed away on May 25th. This photo of the two of us, and Mandy, if you can show that first photo. Um, and I'm going to show you several this morning, so just pretend we're in my living room looking at all these pictures together, okay? So this photo was taken when I was about six months old. I don't have many pictures from my childhood, but this is one of my favorites. I just love that we have the same pooped out expression. <laughs> it reminds me that I had a partner in him, someone I could blame for my twisted wiring. Sorry, Dad. <laughs> um, I've always loved my mom and looked up to her, and I still depend on her. But I remember the feeling of being safe in his arms, hence our theme this morning. Ah, there it is. I get to the theme. <laughs> um, but losing Dad got me thinking not just about loss, but about the source of my safety. People had warned me that when you lose a parent, it's like the figurative roof over your head just gets ripped off. Well, that's pretty accurate. Um, you just never realize how much someone's physical presence becomes part of your reality until you have to come to grips with his or her absence. Um, and if you've lost someone dear, you, you know exactly what I mean. It's confusing. Um, you're just used to, you've always lived with this person around, and all of a sudden, you're looking everywhere, you know, you, you kind of follow your same routine, and it's confusing. Um, when he first passed, every time I looked at his picture or the obituary, I had to take a deep breath. Yes, that was really dad, not some dead man. <laughs> and he is, he's passed, but I had to make that connection. Um, and everywhere I went, I would see older men with their adult children or grandchildren or just walking alone, and I had to remind myself I could search the world and Dad wouldn't be one of them.
yes, deep down, there was a sense of security I had knowing Dad was in my life, so now what? Um, Truth is, in a broader sense, we invest a lot of time and energy into holding on to what we've got, keeping our bodies healthy, our bank accounts and pantry stocks, our cars, homes, and neighborhoods safe, protecting our children. We're supposed to protect what we love and value, but we also know, whether we're believers believers or not, that nothing in this world is ultimately ours. The Bible even tells us that. We can be awesome stewards of what he's given us. Sometimes we're not. But when we go bankrupt, receive a devastating health diagnosis, or, as in the recent hurricanes, find ourselves like Job, stripped of family, shelter, everything we hold dear, how can we ever prepare for that? In addition to the despair, shock, loneliness, etc., we are left with this awful feeling of vulnerability, a where-are-you-God kind of feeling. Ultimately, in losing Dad, and even before I lost him, the Lord had been reminding me that he is my shelter, just as he became my father's, as he made his transition. While God uses those around us, and thank goodness he does, and thank goodness he does, his comfort His comfort is what heals our our hearts, excuse me, and he will wait. He will wait until we find our way back to that truth when we're grieving, because sometimes it takes time to get back to that truth. After all, he, like us, is no stranger to loss, and we are safe, safe in his arms. Let's pray. Dear Father, yes, you are good, and your love endures forever. Thanks for being present today and for bringing us here together. I pray that you use Dad's story and some of my reflections on loss to bring you glory and encourage the hearts of the women here, that you teach us something we can each remember about your faithfulness to us, even when you ask us to part with cherished loved ones, possessions, even career paths and opportunities. May we come to know you, ourselves, and each other better through these seasons, and may we glorify you today and every day. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So in the spring of 2014, just a few months after his retirement, my father was diagnosed with IPF, interstitial pulmonary fibrosis. It's a rare terminal lung disease with a prognosis of only two to five years. No one knows what causes it. Um, The treatments are still in the trial stages and there's no cure. So dad had several risk factors. He'd once been a heavy smoker, even though he quit 30 years ago. Um, He qualified. Um, He had acid reflux, was a male between the ages of 50 to 70. Males are more likely than females to contract it and might potentially have been exposed to air pollutants. Well, who hasn't? (laughs) Um, And while transplant is recommended in nearly all the diagnosed cases for patients um, 65 and under, dad had just missed the cutoff. He was 68, so there was no option for a transplant um, for him. Actually, he was evaluated by Duke, and um, he was hopeful. My mom was hopeful, but he had other health conditions, heart um, disease in his family, and they said, you know, he's just a little too old. It's too risky. Um, The news was particularly heartbreaking because he spent so many of his working years as a mechanical engineer, business owner, then finally business professor and department chair, looking forward to the the day when he could finally lay the ax down to relax a little. Um, And I don't know if I said that phrase right. I get my phrases mixed up all the time. (laughs) But whatever 
that phrase is for like, you know, when you're done working and you lay it down. Throw in the towel, that's giving up. Wrong phrase. <laughs> See? But you know what I mean. When he could finally just put the work down and relax a little. Um, so we'd all heard him remark, you know, when I retire, I want to take up piano. Um, he used to like to hear me play. When I retire, I want to learn Spanish. Um, Dad grew up in India in a town known for its Portuguese Catholic history, and I think he appreciated how similar Spanish was to Portuguese, so he just always loved the music of it. Um, he was extremely passionate about the cause of the unborn, and he used to say, I'm going to devote my time defending their rights when I retire. Well, he still remembers being a schoolboy on his way home one afternoon and seeing a lifeless little infant in a Bombay alleyway. You know, so there were times when, you know, I used to get on him. I mean, I'm pro-life myself, but there were times when I used to feel like he was just so relentless, you know, and, um, and I think he and my mom would get into it occasionally too. Um, but when I kind of explored the root of where that love came from, it was just that experience that he'd had. You know, he found this little baby and, um, you know, as a child, that just left a real imprint on him. And I think He's always, he just always had a heart for the unborn. Um, I wouldn't doubt that's when he first made that vow that, that day. Um, of the handful of hobbies Dad talked about pursuing, though, the one he actually did was fishing. And so we can show. And even here, a good friend had invited him, invited him out fishing. At least the catch was successful. Um, Dad was always working. He was a planner, though, and he had big plans for his retirement. Now what? God had thrown him a curveball he really didn't see coming. Well, a few months after the diagnosis, he came up for a visit, and we celebrated his 69th birthday in June of 2015. So we can show that one. <laughs> and there's on It was great to have him there with the kids. We took him up to Maine. Um, he and Ben planted a little herb garden for me in the back, um, in the backyard. Uh, but I did notice that he found himself winded a lot, um, even though he was still on his feet that weekend cooking shrimp creole. <laughs> but there he is, 68, with Anna and Benny. <laughs> In February of 2016, I flew home for a risky surgery he needed for a triple aortic aneurysm repair. Well, there's always a risk that one of the aneurysms in, in this type of procedure could rupture and you could bleed to death internally. Um, this was a result of the heart condition that he also had. But his procedure was particularly risky because of his lungs, his lung condition. He had um, air sacs, the scarring in the air sacs that would have meant um, just an exacerbation of that, um, of that, of the risk, actually. And um, my mom was also worried that he wouldn't be able to get off the, the ventilator. Um, but fortunately, he made it. He was in great spirits. It was like he'd been given a new lease on life. Um, he said he was glad that God kept him here because he didn't want to take the easy way out. That's what he told us. Um, <laughs> spoken, spoken like a true engineer, you know. He was never one to take shortcuts. So we can show the picture of him after that procedure with my mom and I. Oh, uh, that's the birthday one. Hold on. It's the one... Um, where the three of us are in the hospital. Is that, do we have that one? Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you can see that he still, he still looks fairly healthy. You know, he still has most of his weight. Um, 
So then um, fast forward to his 70th birthday party, 2016, and I'm, I'm getting there. <laughs> Not too many details here. I just wanted to show you guys the pictures. But I planned it, ordered the invites, um, booked a jazz trio, and had a special cake for him that said the old man in the seat. Um, we followed it up, the kids and I, with a two-week visit, um, tried to get him to the ocean. And I'll never forget this because... Um, my dad, you know, as I told you, he never, he didn't spend much time relaxing. I mean, that, that's what he thought retirement was going to be about. And um, so the few, one of the few times that I'd see him really go to be at peace and to um, wind down was on the beach. He loved to walk on the beach. And so um, the kids and I were there, just wanted to spend that extra one-on-one -on -one time with him. We took him to the beach, and it was so heartbreaking because he couldn't make it. He got... He got to, I guess, the pier, and um, and told me he couldn't he couldn't go much farther, and uh, I was hoping I wouldn't do this, <laughs> but I was just so heartbroken for him because I know how much he would have wanted to be out there with us, and he tried to be strong, you know, I know he was, but. I really wanted to get him there for him. I wanted him to be able to put his feet in the water at least to sit down and you know, um, but he couldn't do it. And uh, he was just too winded. And it took us too long to even get him back to the car. Um, long story. Um, but uh, he was just, and I just remember that that particular visit reality was starting to sink in. So then, fast forward again to May 24th, 2017. This was two days after his 44th anniversary um, with my mom. And um, so he and my mom... Uh, had planned to go to Charleston. It was kind of a dying wish of his. That's that's where they uh, lived part of the time. And um, they were all set and ready to go, even though he had just had hospice two days before say that it could be any day now. And um, my mom, during all this time, she'd had a hard time reconciling the fact that my dad had been declining. And so that very day, May 24th, he convinced my mom to let him drive, <laughs> even though by this point, even though by this point he weighed about 124 pounds. Yeah, he wasn't eating much at that point. He was pretty weak. He was on oxygen 24-7, um, so he had his tank with him. You know, they had a little contraption hooked it up to the car, and my mom just refused. She just couldn't say no. I mean, she tried to talk him out of it. And I remember that morning, I called him on the phone, and I was fussing at him, and I said, Dad, you're not one to take risks. I don't understand this. Why are you, um, you know, it's almost like you're taking a chance with your life and mom's. You know, I was just, I just didn't, I didn't get it. And, um, and then a few hours later, um, Ben and I had just come home from um, taking Anna out for lunch that day. A few hours later, I got a call from my brother that my mom and my dad um, were at a hospital in Tennessee. So he, they had stopped at a rest area on the way, and he collapsed at the rest area. Um, my mom caught him. They called the ambulance. He was rushed to the ER, and um, 24 hours later, um, he passed away. So that 24 hours between May 24th and May 25th, I have to tell you, God was so good. Um, it was so hard to be apart from him. Um, we I had to get the family together to get ready 
was through it all. I know he was with my dad. Um, I could tell you a lot more. I don't want to get into too many details now because there's so much more I want to share, and I don't want to go over too much. But um, but the long story short is, um, oh, I do have to mention one thing. is When I was in Market Basket, the day they took him off the life support, um, I heard a song called uh, Humble and Kind by Tim McGraw. I don't know if you've heard that before. I'm not really usually a country fan, but it felt like it was coming straight from my, uh, from my dad. Always stay humble and kind, he said. And I thought about my dad and how at heart he really was humble and kind, but how life had kind of, um, you know, over the years had kind of gotten gotten his heart and twisted it. You know, he was, he got, I would say, frustrated and just more, um, just less tolerant of the, of the bumps in the road that he had in his life. And um, he just, um, he got embittered with his condition and um, he just had a really hard time that last year. And so um, it was good to get that message from him. It was also such a blessing that um, just before six o'clock, I had a thought to call the hospital and check in again because we had been checking up on him. And my mom said, Joy, I think he's about to take his last breaths. And I said, okay, I'm going to say goodbye. And I said my goodbyes to him, and he did. And um, I mean, I'm sorry. And I said, Dad, I love you so much, and I, I'm going to miss you so much. And um, it was just, um, I had been so... Uh, I'd been so distraught about not hearing his voice again. I thought I'd never hear him, uh, hear his voice again. And he just kind of uttered a, ah, ah, you know. And in, it was music to my ears. It was like he was saying, it's well with my soul. I love you. All is well. And so I just felt that that was a gift from God. Um, in that moment, I was just really thankful to be able to say my goodbyes to him. Um, so I just want to, um, before I go on, I just want to say, um, one of the things that made me sad for my father, um, was that even though he knew, um, he, he, even though he knew it wasn't until the end of his life, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm stumbling over my words a little bit, um, I wish that he had known before the end of his life that he could have found rest in Jesus, you know, that it didn't take his retirement um, for him to, to find that rest, that he could have found that rest in his lifetime. I wish he could have discovered that sooner. Um, I am grateful that he did finally find out. Um, but at the Topsfield Fair, um, we were at the Topsfield Fair last week, I met a beekeeper who explained that bees essentially work themselves to death, that that's their natural order, you know. My heart just sank. Um, Hebrews 4.11 says, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into God's rest. And so one of the lessons that I think my dad passed on to me after um, passing um, is that we don't have to work ourselves um, to where we have no rest. Um, and we don't have to work this life, labor and labor in vain, but labor in our own strength. And so I'm so thankful that, um, that then in the end he did find his strength um, in the Lord and that he 
um, I want to encourage you to entrust Jesus with your heart. He calls those who mourn blessed, blessed. He said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And when he refers to Isaiah 61, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to set captives free, to comfort all who mourn. He's talking about us. He's here for you, and I just want to encourage you to entrust your heart to him. So I have this poem I want to share. We're going to switch gears a little bit. It's called One Art. And it's by Elizabeth Bishop. This is a, uh, one of my favorite poets from, from college back in the day. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. <laughs> the art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster, places and names and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I owned, two rivers, a continent. I missed them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, bless you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident the art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, write it, like disaster. So while on the one hand, on the one hand, Bishop's dry poem seems to minimize minimize loss. Um, is there a difference really between losing your keys in a continent, an hour badly spent versus a loved one? No brainer, of course. Um, but it also contains a painful but true acknowledgement: lose something every day, and we do. In the spirit of poetry, and to give us a little reprieve from all this grave stuff. Haha, uh -huh, no pun intended. <laughs> Thought we'd explore a few metaphors for loss or grief for a few minutes, and also a few suggestions for how to come alongside someone who is grieving. Okay, I'm going to wear my teacher cap now, so humor me a little. Here we go. What is grieving like? Well, grieving is like being told it's time to share with God when we don't want to. If you've just lost your best friend and someone said, she's with God now, yeah, but do you want to share? No, <laughs> not yet. And do you want to hear that? No, I don't want to, not yet. <laughs> Oftentimes, while someone grieving knows his or her loved one is with God, they first need to know that you care for the loss they feel. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. So grieving's kind of like sharing, and at first we don't want to. So that's just a little tip. These are kind of Funny tips and at the same time, um, jabs at grieving. Grieving is like a cleanup job. Think, think your least favorite too. The bathroom, the kitchen after Thanksgiving, your musty basement. <laughs> you can put off or you can get your hands and elbows dirty. You can put it off or get your hands and elbows dirty. Put some elbow grease into it though and commit to getting it done. If someone asks you, 
this is a big job and you got to be thorough and nobody can do it like you, then say no and don't feel bad about it. Doing it right takes time, as does your grieving. There is no putting off what will only get worse if you do. So if you think of it like I thought about this as I was cleaning my porch the other day, you know, it's, it's grieving is something that you have to do. You don't want to do it sometimes, but you have to do. You got to get it done. Sometimes it's, um, sometimes it's dirty work, so to speak. Um, here's another kind of strange metaphor, but grieving is like a bad haircut. <laughs> An acquaintance can tell you, looks great, Betty. When they know full well, it doesn't. <laughs> you are clearly stuck with it now, and you both know there's not a whole lot you can do to fix this kind. All right, maybe some you can fix, but this one you can't. Anyway, kind of like when someone tells you, be happy now, when you're in the thick of your grief, and you're the one who has to live with it. They didn't lose the long hair they loved, and they didn't lose whomever you lost. So what am I saying with all this? In all seriousness, grieving is deeply personal. It can leave us feeling vulnerable when someone or something dear is taken. It's a process we must fly through and not fight, just like turbulent air, if we want to go forward. It takes courage to mourn, but we know the giver who gives that courage without partiality. Don't pretend it's not there or skip over your grief unless you want to prolong the healing process. And it is individual. No two people grieve alike. Looks different for each person. It's helpful that you don't put expectations on yourself or on other people as you grieve. And sometimes I'm tempted to compare my grief. Or, oh, this is, um, they don't know how I feel. Or this person doesn't know. Or, um, but each person's grief is so personal. It's each one's, um, it's each one's loss. And only he or she can really fully understand it. And only God can really un fully understand the depth of what you're going through. So as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 5, praise be to God, and this is the good news, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion, and the God of all comfort, one who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. So whatever you say or do for someone grieving, just acknowledge their grief. It's so good to know someone is with you. Um, rather than worrying about saying something profound, just say anything. And if you don't have the words, sometimes it's just a hug, a coming alongside that person to let them know that you're there. Um, God empowers us to comfort those that we love. And he himself, by his Holy Spirit, is the great comforter. Comforter. Finally, we can count our losses as gains when we trust him with our hearts. If all we can say through the tears and anguish, according to Nancy Guthrie, who lost one of her, uh, one of, who lost two of her own children, and she, by the way, Nancy Guthrie, has a wonderful uh, ministry um, that's specifically for parents who've lost uh, their children. If all we can say through those tears and anguish is, I can trust God with this, then we're moving in the right direction. That is, I trust God with 
how this person died, the timing of his or her death, the unanswered questions until my faith becomes sight, my uncertain future. I trust God, I can trust God to heal me. I can trust God to restore my joy, to bring me to life everlasting, etc. So when we know Christ, we can trust that he uses those losses to grow us um, and for his glory, ultimately. James also says to consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So one day, even if we're not there yet, we will count our losses as joy and lack nothing. We can also look at Paul's example in Philippians 3, verses 4 through 9, as he counts it all loss, but for gain. And he says in, verse, in chapter 3, verses 4 through 9, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. So all of these things Paul called his criteria. He had plenty to boast about. You know, he fit the bill. He was the man. <laughs> but whatever were gains to me, he says, whether professional, whether... Um, qualifications, whatever it might be, um, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ, he says. Whatever were gains for me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. So when I reflect on, on my own life, and I think back over the years of things that maybe God's asked me to give up, um, whether it be someone that I loved or whether it be a job choice, um, a decision to, to stay home, or for some people it might be a decision to work, um, a decision to um, whatever it, uh, just to lay myself down every day. Um, every day the decisions that we do for him are ones that he prompts us to, um, to make, but oftentimes it means that there's also a loss. Um, something that we feel we feel the loss of that but at the same time we know that it's bearing fruit for we know that it's bearing fruit for him um, and for the work that he's doing through us that's a victory you know that we can really um, hold on to that we can really um, trust and embrace that um, all of these losses are temporary but what we have but what we have and what we do for God we know is eternal and um, that's something that I, you know, is, it's like the um, Nancy Guthrie comment, that's a truth that we can hold on to when we're in the midst of our own grieving or when we're in the midst of that loss, is we can recognize um, that these losses are temporary.
what is eternal, what is lasting, is gain. We gain for him. Um, I maybe I'm not sure if we have a little bit more time. Um, Mandy, do we have? I think I might have. Uh, would we have a few more minutes that we might be able to play the excerpt that I was sharing? I wanted to play an excerpt of a gospel hymn, the gospel hymn that was sort of the theme for my talk today, and it's called Safe in His Arms. And we can just do the excerpt there.
just reminds me of where we find our, who, who is our shelter um, during those storms and who we can cling to. So I'm close to being out of time, but I wanted to uh, leave you with a verse I found on my daily calendar um, the day that my dad went home to be with the Lord and um, to be with so many of those that he had gone before him. And it was, it's from 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying.